welcome to Season 1, All Things Ethics, a podcast series presented by SpeechTherapyPD.com. The SLP Learning Series explores various topics of speech-language pathology. Each season dives deeper into a topic with a different host and guest who are leaders in the field. Some topics include stuttering, AAC, sports concussion, teletherapy, ethics, and more. Each episode has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com and is available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. Now, come along with us as we look closer into the many topics of speech-language pathology. Okay, welcome Dr. McFarland and Dr. Calandruccio. Research is the foundation of speech-language pathology practice. Speech-language pathologists are required to engage in evidence-based practice. The information about evidence-based methods is a result of research that is done carefully and competently. Ethics is an ingredient of the careful and competent. We depend on researchers to provide the information and outcomes that inform what we do to help our clients, students, and patients achieve their communication potential. Without research, we would not have the information we need to do what we do as speech-language pathologists. We must be able to trust the information that research yields. That's where ethics comes in. There are a lot of issues to be considered that are related to ethical considerations in research. There's authorship, peer review, conflicts of interest, data management, and many others. So clinicians who are not researchers, but who use research to inform their practice and interaction with their students, clients, and patients, must be concerned about research ethics because we are the beneficiaries of that research. So let me introduce you to Dr. Lauren Calandrucio, who is our guest for this Ethics in Research podcast. Dr. Calandrucio is an audiologist and associate professor at Case Western Reserve University in the Department of Psychological Science that houses the Communication Sciences Program. In 2018, she was the first co-current winner of both the Carl F. Whitkey Award for Excellence in Undergraduate Teaching and the Dr. Bruce Jackson Award for Excellence in Undergraduate Mentoring at Case Western Reserve. Dr. Calandrucio is on the ASHA Board of Trustees, the ASHA Foundation Board of Trustees, and is a past editor of the American Journal of Audiology. Her research on speech perception in noise focuses on informational masking and bilingual populations and is funded by the National Institutes of Health, National Institute of Deafness, and other communication disorders. Dr. Calandrucio, welcome to All Things Ethics, and thank you so much for agreeing to share your experience and expertise about research ethics. You are an experienced and highly regarded researcher, and you also have a faculty position, which means you are preparing students to be the researchers of the future. I have some questions for you and a scenario that will illustrate some of the ethical principles we're going to be talking about. So. We will get started with our first question. 
The birth of modern research ethics began with a desire to protect human subjects involved in research projects. ASHA's Code of Ethics requires that certified clinicians obtain informed consent from the persons they serve. Of course, that includes our colleagues who are conducting research. Why is getting informed consent important in a research project? And is there other information the researcher should give a prospective participant in addition to exploring the purpose of the research and the participant's role in the research? Hi, Dr. Davis McFarland. Thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of all things ethics. The answer to the first part of your question, why is it important to get informed consent in a research project, is to protect human subjects. And the reason for this, unfortunately, is rooted in many years of unethical research practices around the globe. The main foundation of how the informed consent process currently works is based on a set of standards that were first developed in 1947, following egregious unethical research practices on humans during World War II. These standards were outlined in the Nuremberg Code. Informed consent continued to evolve after the Declaration of Helsinki in 1964. In Helsinki, Finland, the World Medical Association adopted principles to guide biomedical research. It was there that the idea of an Institutional Review Board, or an IRB, was first introduced. Unfortunately, precipitated by continued unethical research practices, the U.S. National Commission for the Protection of Human Subjects of Biomedical and Behavioral Research published what is known as the Belmont Report in 1979. The report defined three principles for ethical research that continue to guide and shape IRB regulations nationally. First, the respect for persons. This basically states that the autonomy of participants is protected, that all participants are treated justly, including that researchers are not deceitful with respect to the research being conducted. Second, beneficence, which implies that you will do no harm to the research subject and that you will do everything possible to minimize risk. And third, justice. You will use procedures that are reasonable and well-considered and are administered fairly and equally across subjects. Regarding the second part of your question, the principal investigator of every research project is responsible for writing the informed consent document. This document should explain the purpose of the research, why the participant is being recruited. It should describe every single procedure that will be completed during the research. It should also clearly state all foreseeable risks and discomforts as well as any anticipated benefits. Participants should be told if and how they will be compensated for their participation. The voluntary nature of the study should also be clearly defined. Further, it is important to outline to the subject how their data will be kept confidential. Lastly, the investigator's data retention plan should be described to the participant. The Institutional Review Board, or IRB, at each institution also has a big responsibility 
to carefully review all research protocols and ensure that no details were omitted from the consent documents. The IRB also ensures that the language used in the documents is easy to read and to understand. Prior to any research being conducted that participants should be oops, excuse me, prior to any research being conducted, the participants should be allowed time to read the consent form. They should have an opportunity to ask questions and have time to decide whether or not they want to participate. You mentioned the IRB. What are the possible consequences of conducting research without submitting the research protocol to the IRB? I would hope that anyone conducting research would be aware that they cannot conduct any research without obtaining consent from their institutional review board. So at a university, an institutional review board is housed within the university. Hospitals typically have their own review board, as well as large research institutions. And this board is in place to make sure that the onus is not on the scientists themselves, but that it's a paired review of the, of the research being done by not only the scientist who's conducting the research, but also um, a non-biased review board that is also in place to protect the human subject. So that was a big difference between the, the standards that were outlined originally in the Nuremberg Code between the Declaration of Helsinki in 1964 the big difference between those two sets of codes that both were created to protect the human subject, the, the former really put all of the onus on the scientists themselves to make sure that they clearly defined how they would protect the research subject. But as we moved forward and this process continued to evolve, the medical community community realized that it would be better to have an outside board also review all the procedures that were going to happen with the research subject. Okay. So in in this case, for example, at Case Western, if you did research without approval, your lab would be immediately shut down. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's very serious. Yes. Very serious. Okay, let's go on to to my next question, and that's a question about participant information. Researchers are obligated to protect the confidentiality and security of research participants' personal information. Failure to do so is a violation of ASHA's Code of Ethics. What recommendations do you have for securing participants' information and ensuring that confidentiality is not compromised? If possible, I would suggest at all times to try and not store any identifying information. For example, a person's name, their exact date of birth, anywhere. However, if you need to keep identifying information linked to participant data, it is important to not store it alongside their experimental data. That is, you would want to keep this information separate and utilize participant codes on all data sheets that contain experimental results. The document that links that subject code with the identifying information should be kept separate in a secure and locked location. 
these files should be password protected and encrypted. And the research investigator should limit who has access to this document. The best case scenario is that only the principal investigator has access to the information. Once the identifying information is no longer needed, it should be properly destroyed. Depending on the experiments we have run in our own laboratory, often the only place a subject's name appears is on the consent form. That is, when we do the data collection, we immediately code the response with their subject identifier. If we need to track a child's age, we use their age rounded to the nearest year and month and never record their actual date of birth. For our adult participants, we only collect their age in years. For certain projects, we may want some participants to come back for multiple experiments. In this case, we do record their names and link those names to subject identifiers. In our research lab, this is important because we don't want to use the same stimuli in our speech perception experiments with the same participants across two different projects. However, the document that links identifying data with each participant's subject code is only accessible via a secure cloud service that is approved by Case Western Reserve's IRB and is only accessible by few members in our lab. In our case, it's our lab manager and one of our PhD students. If there is ever a breach of confidentiality, one should immediately contact their local IRB office their office will be able to help you with appropriate next steps to help ensure the protection of your subjects. So what, what you're outlining really sounds very, very thorough, but it also seems to require quite a lot of coordination, infrastructure, and really uh, specific knowledge about what is to be done with information that could identify a participant. So quite a lot goes into this, I see. Yes, we take this very seriously in, with patients and with research subjects. It's very important that any information that could be used to identify a person is kept separate from their experimental data. So when I mentioned date of birth, that is something that somebody could use to figure out who the research participant was. And that's one of the reasons we use age instead of the specific date of birth. Want graduate level semester credits for your speechtherapypd.com courses? They are available now in collaboration with the University of Pacific. And as you know, most of our 750 plus video and audio courses are evidence-based and all are super practical. Subscribe now. All right, let's, uh, let's move on. You recently, I want to talk about an article that you, that you published recently, you and your colleagues, to determine the association, your research was, uh, the purpose of the research, was to determine the association between language dominance and language proficiency in Spanish-English bilingual adults. Even though your study yielded new and important information in the discussion section of the article, you indicated that more research is needed on the areas that you had just investigated. 
We see this term, more research is needed, quite often in research articles. Is there an ethical requirement to indicate the need for additional research, even when research yields substantial findings? So thoroughly answering a scientific question is not often a quick and easy process. As researchers, we often have to ask many questions to obtain a comprehensive and conclusive answer. I do not believe that the phrase, further research is needed, is ethically required in all research papers. In fact, it is somewhat of a questionable phrase if you don't suggest what the next steps are, which I do hope you think we clearly defined in our paper that we recently published. We should note that the phrase, further research is needed, is sometimes referred to as a cop-out or seen as almost cliche when written in text. This is because in the case of most research, further research is almost always needed. So in some ways, this phrase is seen as redundant or already understood. I would pose that for people like myself that are immersed in scientific writing, do indeed see the redundancy of the phrase. However, often scientists like myself are writing for a broader audience, one that may not necessarily have the time to be immersed in the literature. In the specific paper that you mentioned, which was led by one of my colleagues, Manuel Vicente, at Boys Town National Research Hospital, the manuscript was delivered to be consumed mainly by clinicians. It was published in the American Journal of Audiology. So in some ways, this phraseology is incorporated into the paper to remind the reader that they cannot take this finding as fact and as the current best practice at any point in time, but rather at this point in time, this is what we believe to either be true or the best approach. As our research evolves, so hopefully does our thinking. The rationale behind the study you mentioned was to begin to address the important need for efficient and rigorous clinical assessment of language proficiency to better serve the growing number of Spanish-English bilingual patients who visit audiology clinics in the U.S. Though we feel that our research has provided clinicians with a strategy to incorporate information about a patient's linguistic background into their case history forms, we also acknowledge that within our statistical analyses, substantial variance in our results was unaccounted for. As researchers, we will continue to probe and explore better ways to provide inclusive and best practice care for all people that visit the audiology clinic, despite their native language background. And as clinicians, we need to be sure that we do not read one article and take it as the final word on any assessment or intervention approach. And so I do hope that the reader does not see our reminder that further research is needed as cliche, nor do they read this statement as an ethical obligation to include within the paper. Instead, I hope the reader dissects the suggested next steps and perhaps is even motivated to take an active role in the research process, and that these proposed next steps may even inspire future work that is focused on the same problems and questions that we are trying to tackle in our lab. There is a lot of work to be done to build a strong evidence base for inclusive clinical practice in both speech-language pathology and audiology, and the more researchers trying to tackle these problems, the better. 
Interesting. Let me get back to one of the things that you mentioned while you were speaking on this. And you you spoke about not taking a particular research finding as a best practice. But the outcomes that are provided in uh, a lot of studies provides, you know, new information and insight into an important area. How can the reader or clinician use that information? We are required to use evidence-based practice and evidence-based methods, but even if something is not codified as a best practice, the information may be very good and very useful. What is yes. your advice? Um, in, I didn't in mean to imply to not that? rely on the literature to help guide your best clinical decisions. In fact, I think that is where people should be relying to get evidence of what they're doing is going to indeed be beneficial to their clients. But there are certain ways that we can read the literature that are more beneficial to delivering best practice. For example, when readers are trying to consume literature on certain techniques, it's very wise to search for meta-analyses on the topics. This type of research, a meta-analysis, tries to pull many research experiments together that are exploring the same research topic and that perhaps use similar outcome measures to see if indeed the treatment options, for example, are effective. This allows you to have a stronger sense of making sure that the research isn't biased, whether intentionally or not, whether the, the significant or lack of significant results aren't due to a sampling error, for example. And so if you could read more broadly, which sometimes is hard to do if you have limited time, reading meta-analyses that are done for you should be encompassing a broader range of literature. In our case, the reason why I make that point is we are underway of a large research study looking at a large cohort of Spanish-English bilingual participants. And over the next few years, we'll have more data coming in. And though I would be surprised if what we suggest in our recent publication, I would be surprised if what we suggest changes, we might evolve that thinking and further that thinking as more data comes in. And so my intent there was to make sure people realize what they read today might not be as new and fresh as what's out there in five years. And so it just reiterates the importance of keeping up with reading and keeping up with the literature and attending scientific meetings so you can see how things evolve over time. Okay. All right. Well, I'm, I'm sure that's, that sounds like very reasonable advice, and I, I can imagine that our listeners will be will be able to use that. And I think your your idea about the the meta analysis is a great one, and keeping current in in the area that uh, that you're most interested in. Thank you. All right, let me give you a scenario. You are the editor of a professional journal, which you have been. 
You receive an article on a research project that has been submitted for publication. You realize that the author has used an inappropriate statistical technique in order to enhance the significance of his research. Is that an ethical violation? You know the author and you know he is coming up for tenure at his university. He must get this article and some other articles published in order to meet the deadline for submission of his tenure portfolio. What, if any, is your responsibility here well, as the in my opinion, editor? what you described would be an ethical violation. Whether you are an editor or a reviewer, part of being an active member of the review process is upholding your ethical obligation to not bias your review based on personal relations with the author. This is true for the example that you gave. That is, you know the author is a junior scientist. They likely need publications for a multitude of different reasons. Or in the case of a negative relationship with the author, you must take your personal bias out of the equation or decline to conduct the review. As the journal editor, it is your responsibility to hold the author to the highest standard so that the journal itself is not negatively impacted. The journal is in significant jeopardy without high-quality peer-reviewed papers. Fortunately, the way the review process works, you're not the only one watching out for these problems, whether these issues are intentional or not. For almost all peer reviews, there are at least three sets of eyes on the submitted manuscript. Typically, there are two reviewers, at least two reviewers, and one editor assigned to each paper. When I submit to journals, I try and request editors that I know provide comprehensive and tough critiques of my article. Reading concerns from these respected scientists in my field often when they often provide suggestions on how to make the paper stronger, undoubtedly it improves the quality of my own publications. It takes a lot of time to review articles, and many of us take this responsibility, which is almost always done on a completely volunteer basis, very seriously. As the journal editor, it is indeed your responsibility to ensure that everyone on your team your reviewers, and the authors themselves are upholding their end of the bargain to conduct ethical research and to publish full results, not just those that tell a convenient story for publication. Thankfully, journal boards like the one run through ASHA have an editor-in-chief for every journal. During my time as a journal board editor, Dr. Larry Humes and Dr. Sumit Rajit Dar both served as editor-in-chief for the American Journal of Audiology. There were several occasions that I was faced with having to confront authors on behavior that was ethically questionable. Both Dr. Humes and Dr. Dar, with their many years of experience, spent time reviewing all of the cases with me and helped me make the best decision for the journal and its readers. As an editor, it is not the author we are trying to protect, but it is of utmost importance that we protect our readers and try to provide them with the highest quality research possible. Are you taking advantage of our new amazing feature? The Certificate Tracker. The free CE Tracker allows you to keep track of all of your CEUs. 
whether they are earned with us at speechtherapypd.com or through another provider. Simply upload your certificate to your registered account and you're all set. So come join the fastest growing CE provider, speechtherapypd.com. You know, some of what you say about the review process may be new information for some of our listeners. The fact that more than one person is often involved in the review process, I think is is interesting. I think that it it can give us even more confidence in 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 the research that uh, that is published, knowing that the the article, the contents of the article, the research that has been done has been sanctioned by more than one yes, expert. Yes, if you haven't been through the, process, uh, through the process, so, um, sometimes you don't realize what a long and sometimes grueling process it can be. Typically, you submit your article to a journal and it gets sa- assigned to an editor that typically has a similar research background as the the scientists submitting the paper. That editor is then responsible for finding reviewers who have similar expertise as what's written, what's being studied in the article, and assign that paper to multiple reviewers. I've never had fewer than two reviewers on a paper that I've submitted, nor assigned, or, or assigned, rather. And I've had, unfortunately, up to five reviewers on one paper, which is is quite hard to deal with because all of the reviewers usually find their own critiques of the paper. So during that process, you really have to take every single comment made by the reviewers and address them by either changing what you've done, correcting what you've done, doing what you've done more thoroughly or better, or sometimes just explaining what you've done better. Sometimes the reviewers are happy with what you did, but the way that you've written it isn't clear, and really what they just need is further clarification. And again, this whole process is to make sure that we have high-quality science in our journals. And this is very important, especially for our clinicians who don't have time to read numerous research articles and really want to hone in on the research articles that have top-quality science in them. And, you know, I know that it is, it is quite a process, both for the reviewer, but also for the author of the article. And in our journals, we will see the date that the original research or the original article was submitted, and then the date that the review was sent back to the author, and then the date that the author responded with corrections or edits or whatever was necessary. And then you see the month or the date that you're reading this article in the publication. So it it is quite a process for both the reviewers as well as the authors. And sometimes you'll see a number of months between the time that the review is submitted back to the author and the author's resubmission of the of the article. So not only does the research take time, but all of the preparation that goes into the review as well as the final, final product that we see in our journals 
takes quite amount of can take quite an amount of time also. Absolutely. And sometimes the comments made by the reviewers necessitate the need for further experimentation. So we have had papers that we've submitted that we thought were done. And once they go through the review process, the reviewers really want more information. And to give them more information, the only answer is to do another experiment. So sometimes that large gap in time that you see between the initial submission and when that paper is actually published is due to the the need to conduct more research in the middle of that process. We once had an experiment that went in, the initial paper had one experiment in. By the time the paper was published, it had three experiments in the paper. And it it can be daunting, and and it is a, a little bit taxing sometimes, both for the authors and the reviewers, but I have to say, we've never gone through this process and come out with a paper that isn't stronger on the back end. So the review process is very important, and it really does help to strengthen the science that does get published in the literature. That's interesting, because I was going to ask you if you'd ever gotten feedback on an article or or on a project or an article that you felt was not helpful. But uh, you do feel that going through the review process really does strengthen the final final product. When I was a younger scientist, (laughs) I I would read some of these comments and I would have told you that, yes, some of the comments are not helpful. And I've actually learned to change my approach of how I interpret the comments. When you're not used to being criticized so much, and sometimes when it's hard for people to hear these critiques, you get offended by the comments and you can't see the helpfulness in the comments. And the way that I approach my reviews now is that I read the comments and I realize If I'm sitting there and saying, that comment doesn't make sense, or this comment is silly, why would they critique me on that? There must be a reason. They're not just doing it for their own health, right? And maybe it's because the way that I wrote the paper initially wasn't clear. And when they read it, they were left with this question or an idea that what I did didn't make sense. And so I feel it's my responsibility as the author to rewrite what I wrote and make sure that it is clear so that the person doesn't have the same concern. Interesting. Change in perspective, huh? Very good. Yeah. It makes makes the review process, at least on the author (laughs) side, um, a lot easier to handle if you can flip your perspective. That makes a lot of sense. It really does. All right. Dr. Calandrucio, during our preparation for this podcast, you introduced me to an idea I was completely unfamiliar with, and that is pre-registering research. Talk about pre-registering research and the ethical implications of that. Okay, so pre-registration is becoming more popular and is used by many of my colleagues in psychology here at Case Western Reserve University. In fact, certain psychological journals now require pre-registration, and without it, your paper will not be considered for publication. So what is pre-registration? 
it is basically an open research practice that helps scientists stick to their a priori ideas about an experiment. That is, once you have an idea for an experiment and before collecting data, or at least definitely before analyzing it, you can pre-register the project with a journal. What you are doing is basically outlining your research plan in advance, sort of what one does in a grant proposal. In this process, you would outline what you plan to do, what stimuli you plan to use, who you expect to test, how many participants you plan to test, and outline your hypotheses, trying to provide as much detail as possible. This pre-registration process is being urged to try and decrease publication bias. It is argued that such a practice is needed because, unfortunately, there are data published that report significant results when no real effect was actually observed. Some people refer to this practice as p-hacking, or a way to look for significant statistical results when there is no real effect. Some argue that p-hacking is not exclusively done by those who do it consciously, but that some of us may even do it subconsciously. Fierce competitive markets are argued to be the driver of some of this questionable behavior. People claim that the unhealthy culture of a publish or perish mentality combined with other factors such as certain journals or disciplines being less likely to publish insignificant results, fierce competition for faculty and scientist positions nationally, increasingly tight funding opportunities, etc., cause people to take a post-diction approach in which they basically use their data to generate their hypothesis rather than the other way around. Without pre-registration, it is hard to decipher which came first, the hypothesis or the data. The idea behind pre-registration is to try and limit biased approaches in research. The process of pre-registration is still in its infancy. Hopefully, the rules and regulations behind pre-registration will evolve in such a way that its main impact is to strengthen research standards. When people initially heard about pre-registration in communication disorders, I think many people, including myself, had a knee-jerk reaction. In some ways, it seemed like one more step in an already grueling and somewhat daunting process. But the more I've read and learned about pre-registration, I think that the process will likely improve the transparency of research studies and help strengthen the credibility of all science. That is so interesting because based on, on what you've said, it seems to me that pre-registration should increase the consumer's confidence in the integrity of the research results, especially since you say that Without this process, there may be a tendency on the part of some researchers to let their outcomes determine their hypothesis, which is interesting. I had never thought about that, about that possibility. Yes, I, you know, I think that's because in, and maybe this is my naivete, but in communication disorders, especially the types of research projects that I've been a part of, 
we really go in from a clinical perspective and ask a very clinically oriented question. And our hypotheses are set up based on what we know and what we do in the clinic. And so we often get results that we don't anticipate and that don't necessarily support our hypothesis, our original hypothesis. But we just tell the story how the chips fall and what the data present. And we can get these data published in speech and hearing journals. When I tell this to my colleagues in psychology, they say that they have great difficulty publishing any results that are quote, negative or not significant. And from a speech and hearing perspective, I find this very disappointing because I can only imagine doing an experiment to find out it doesn't work and somebody else has already spent two years doing it and they found the same result, but I never knew about it because they weren't able to publish those results. And, you know, we're really able to learn from what people try and do and, and sometimes fail doing, but it helps us continue to push the field forward even when things don't necessarily turn out the way that we had anticipated. What's nice about this pre-registration process is, especially in the age of really strong computing computer processing, is when people have really large sets of data, there is a chance that people could go in and run all sorts of statistical analyses and seek out the findings that are significant. And if you go in post hoc and make it seem like those were the only things you were looking for, it really biases your story because that's not indeed how it happened, right? You went in asking one question you collected a lot of data, which allows you to do many different analyses. If everything but one thing comes out with a non-significant result, the significant result could have just happened because of chance. And if you then publish only that significant finding, it could really bias the literature and make people go in a direction that really isn't founded on strong data. And this is one of the reasons that we do say that more research is needed, because even when we do find strong data in the literature that support, for example, a treatment option that we want to use or an assessment approach that we want to use, we need to be sure that other people can replicate that finding so that there wasn't something like a sampling error occurring in the results that we did read. Well. Interesting. Very, very interesting. Makes a lot of sense. And this idea of pre-registering research is sounds like it might be something that becomes more and more popular and maybe even more and more necessary in the future. Yes. And I think we will start to see it more and more in speech and hearing journals as well. With special rates for all groups of Fibermore, along with our free student accounts, SpeechTherapyPD.com continues to be the fastest growing CE provider. If you like this podcast and want to hear more, we are offering an audio course subscription special coupon code to listeners of this podcast. Simply enter the word SLP Learn for $20 off.
All right, let's talk about cultural competence and inclusion, because as speech-language pathologists and members of ASHA, that is something that is stressed quite a bit. ASHA promotes the importance of cultural competence and inclusion in clinical practice and research. The National Center for Cultural Competence at Georgetown University recommends some culturally and linguistically competent approaches for several aspects of research. Can you talk about those ideas and how you have implemented them in your research? Sure. So for the people in our audience that are not aware of the National Center for Cultural Competence, I would just like to highlight its mission. The mission of the NCCC is to increase the capacity of healthcare and mental health care programs to design, implement, and evaluate culturally and linguistically competent service delivery systems to address growing diversity, persistent disparities, and to promote health and mental health equity. Personally, I have always been very interested in the experience of people with multicultural and multilingual backgrounds. I teach a course at Case Western Reserve on multicultural issues as they relate to communication disorders. And my line of research has evolved to include non-native English speech perception. I'm currently a co-investigator on an R01 grant from the NIH, NIDCD, that is focused on implementing a speech perception tool that we initially created in the laboratory, but which is currently being transitioned to the clinic. The tool, which we call CHEGS, assesses both English and Spanish speech perception for children. CHEGS is designed so that both English and Spanish can be assessed within the same child as their language proficiency and dominance changes throughout their language development. The NCCC provides clinicians and researchers with checklists to help facilitate the integration of cultural and linguistic competency within their research. Some of the topic areas that are highlighted on this checklist include demonstrating knowledge of special issues associated with conducting research in diverse communities, having knowledge and skills to use culturally and linguistically competent approaches in all aspects of research, and disseminating research findings in a manner that does not stigmatize groups or populations studied. Anyone who is interested can check out their website to see the full checklist at nccc.georgetown.edu. In a recent publication from our lab, we argued against using the phrase bilingual disadvantage to describe the greater difficulty that non-native speakers of English often have understanding English speech in noisy backgrounds. There are numerous data sets supporting the idea that people who have lower English proficiency and speak English as a second language almost always require a more favorable signal-to-noise ratio to understand masked English speech than more proficient native English speakers. However, the subjects described in these studies are able to recognize speech in more than one language, and they do so both in quiet and in background noise. This linguistic flexibility is clearly an advantage. Even if a more favorable signal-to-noise ratio is required to communicate in one or more of those languages, and this example highlights how a poor choice of words 
can stigmatize a large segment of the population. In this example, bilingual speakers of English. Even if that is not our initial intention of the use of a phrase like bilingual disadvantage, those words can be negative for the population. Well, I think that, that your effort to eliminate the term bilingual disadvantage is an excellent example of the importance of cultural competence in research because ours or yours effort, yours is an effort to change thoughts and practices that might be quite detrimental in a clinical, in a clinical atmosphere or in clinical practice. So we often talk about cultural competence and inclusion in terms of, in speech language pathology, in terms of assessment and diagnosis, as well as in terms of treatment and intervention. But I think you've given an excellent example of how that is very important in research also, and, and how that attitude in research and that knowledge in research can, in fact, come over to the clinical area and really influence what we do, just in terms of the terms that we use even. No longer using bilingual disadvantage as a term can certainly lead to a difference in thinking about, about that particular approach and attitude in terms of clinical intervention. So, very interesting. All right. You are an experienced researcher and you have master's and doctoral students in your lab. Some of them, especially the doctoral students, will go on to a career of, as faculty and university researchers. Given your experience as a university researcher and journal editor, do you think junior faculty are being taught ethical practices and how to exercise ethical decision making as a part of their research? And number two, should employers ask researchers about their ethical training as part of their employment interview? Well, this is a great question. Now, I hope that most students going through their PhD programs, especially those in my lab, are being taught ethical practices by simply observing how we conduct the work that's being done in my lab, and in other cases, by simply observing their mentor and other faculty members in their department and at their university. However, often it is hard to know what is the best ethical response in a particular situation until you're actually faced with having to make a decision in that situation. And this is where coursework can really be helpful in educating the person on how to think ethically. At Case Western Reserve, we have a department of bioethics in which students can choose from many different courses that are taught at both the undergraduate and graduate level in the fundamentals of ethical issues raised by research involving human subjects. We also incorporate education on research ethics in the required coursework for our PhD students. So in many of the statistical classes that they have to take, during their coursework, these concepts are stressed in their classes, in their coursework, in discussions, prior to getting too in-depth with basic statistical approaches. 
both pre-doctoral and postdoctoral awards that are supported by the NIH, which provides funding for students to study at the PhD level and at the postdoctoral level, mandate that students receive training on responsible conduct of research. In fact, it is required that students not only attend face-to-face -face lectures, but they complete coursework and have discussion groups on topics such as conflicts of interest, authorship, data management, human subjects, research misconduct, and research ethics. Undoubtedly, people that complete this type of training can highlight this accomplishment in their letters of intent for job applications and talk about their learning experiences on ethical decision-making when applying for jobs, especially in university settings. And I imagine that this would just strengthen their candidacy for that job. I have been part of three different faculty, and to the best of my knowledge, none of these employers directly ask about ethical training as part of the interview process. However, perhaps moving forward, collectively as a discipline, we should really think of all future models ensuring that graduate students are required in CSD to complete such training during their graduate programs, that listing ethics training as a requirement for prospective job candidates maybe be included in candidacy hires, as well as encouraging our universities to provide free ongoing research ethics training for all faculty on campus. As the culture change, as society changes, we have to be more aware of things like social media, genetics research, things that we didn't really have to think about maybe 10 or 15 years ago, but we do have to think about today. So this is always changing and evolving, and it's just another example of staying current with best practice standards. You know, you mentioned that one of the things that you cover at Case Western Reserve in the courses and the experiences in terms of ethics education for your students one of the areas is that you mentioned was authorship and I guess of articles and research information. I was invited during the summer to a conference in another country, which I won't mention, but in another country. And I was speaking with some graduate students about their research and their publications. And they made me very aware of the fact that in their country, and this was a speech communication sciences and disorders program that the senior faculty always, their names always came first on articles that were published about the research that the students had done because culturally that is what is appropriate. And I thought about the fact that that's very different than what we do here, what is expected, and what our code of ethics requires. But it's just an example of the differences in terms of ethics and ethical thinking and culture in different, in different environments and in different countries. But it sounds to me like your students at Case Western are getting very good preparation in terms of 
the ethics of research. And earlier you talked about other things like protection of of participants as well as pre-registering research that really do provide a foundation and a support for ethical practice in research. So it's all very, very interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, I know that our listeners have really benefited from the information that you provided about ethics in research and your experiences as a researcher and your role in training and educating future researchers. I want to thank you very much for being with me on this podcast because ethics is essential. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us at SLP Learning Series. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs. We appreciate your positive reviews and support and would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe. If you like this and want to hear more, we are offering an audio course subscription special coupon code to listeners of this podcast. Type the word SLP Learn for $20 off. With hundreds of audio courses on demand and new courses released weekly, it's only $59 per year with the code. Visit speechtherapypd.com and start earning ASHA CEUs today.